Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Well, over the past several weeks, we as a, a church family have been looking at the story of Lazarus and how Jesus raised him from the dead. And as he did so, shortly before he did so, Jesus so confidently declared, I am the resurrection and the life. We only have three written accounts in the Bible of Jesus raising someone else from the dead. But of the three, Lazarus, his resurrection was, I think, the most glorious, was the greatest. Of those three accounts, the first one, Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son in Luke chapter 7. And then secondly, in another account, Jesus raises the Galilean synagogue leader's daughter in Luke chapter 8. But both of these resurrections occurred on the same day that the person died. The third resurrection account, that of Lazarus, was remarkable in that Lazarus had been dead and in the tomb for four stinking days. He was already decomposing when Jesus authoritatively and publicly called him forth out of the tomb. Can you imagine being able to witness just one of these displays of Jesus' resurrection power? I mean, can you just wrap your mind around what it would be like to behold that? I mean, that would be an experience that you would probably treasure and share with others the rest of your life, just getting to see one. The disciples got to see all three of them. And who knows, maybe even more, that, that verse that was just read from John chapter 20 tells us that there were many other signs that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples that weren't even written down. I often marvel at the fact that the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't even record the story of Lazarus. If John hadn't written written it down, we wouldn't even know about it. The disciples saw these three resurrection signs Miracles so glorious among all the other glorious miracles that Jesus did. And who could argue with Jesus now as he boldly told Martha in this story in in, uh, John chapter 11. That I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You know, yet as glorious as, as Lazarus' resurrection was, as all these resurrections that Jesus accomplished in his ministry, as glorious as those were, none of these glorious experiences prepared any of his followers for what came next. Jesus was betrayed by Judas, one of his own disciples, by one of his friends. And then he was 
suddenly and horrifically crucified. And his followers were dejected and scattered as he died on the cross. His disciples apparently didn't have a category for thinking of someone as the resurrection and the life when they saw him so horrifically defeated by death. It was the last thing on their minds. What does it matter how many times he raised others from the dead if he couldn't prevent himself from from dying on the cross? While Jesus was hanging on the cross, dying, the, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that some were there who mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. There's a certain earthly reasonableness to that line of thinking, isn't there? Yet what they didn't know was that there was a heavenly reason why Jesus did not save himself. Jesus was intentionally laying down his perfect life as a self-sacrifice, shedding his innocent blood for our sins. It was a heavenly reason that they didn't know. It wasn't nails that held Jesus to the cross. His love did. His obedience to his Father did. He could have come down off that cross at any time. Now Jesus' disciples, his own disciples, would never have mocked him like those who were standing there at the foot of the cross. Never would have mocked him for his seeming inability to save himself. Yet it's clear from the way that they reacted to his death that they must have been puzzled with many of the same things. Two of his disciples were overheard saying in their confusion in Luke chapter 24, verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. Their hopes had been dashed. Well, you know what comes next after Jesus' death. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus buried Jesus hastily as the Sabbath was quickly approaching. And meanwhile, his disciples spent a long, mournful Saturday hiding, full of fear and sorrow, anger and and even shame. And then even by Sunday morning, the last thing apparently on their minds was that Jesus would rise again. They were not there waiting at the tomb, waiting to see Jesus rise from the dead. In fact, it was a, a group of women coming, not expecting a resurrection, but to further honor his dead body and to mourn his death. It was a group of women that were worried about who would roll away the stone. No one was prepared for one more all-surpassingly glorious demonstration of his resurrection power. But he did it anyway. Scriptures teach us so plainly that after being dead for three days, having been so brutally 
put to death by the Roman justice system. And having been made a self-sacrifice to God in place for our sins, that Jesus raised himself from the grave. You know, it's one thing to raise others from the grave. That has been done before, even in the Old Testament, through pious men who, in prayer and in faith, God used to raise someone from the dead. But Jesus raised himself from the dead. Think about it. Sometimes the scriptures speak in terms of God the Father being the one who raised Jesus to new life. And that's very true. Really, it's just semantics. Since Jesus and the Father are one. The resurrection was clearly a Trinitarian act involving the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so it's entirely true to say both that God raised Jesus from the dead and that Jesus raised himself from the dead. Both of those statements are equally true. But how stunning in particular is this claim that Jesus would make in his life that he had the authority and the ability to raise himself up from the dead. What a claim. In John chapter 10 and verse 17 and 18, Jesus said this, he said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. You know, no one took Jesus' life from him. He laid it down. That's what I was saying, that he, it was love that held him there. It was his choice to lay down his life. It was a self-sacrifice. Well, just as this was a self-sacrifice, Jesus says, my resurrection is going to be a self-resurrection. I lay down my life. I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Another example from earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. All who heard him kind of took that literally. Right? They thought Jesus was speaking of literally tearing down the temple in Jerusalem and then in three days rebuilding it brick by brick. Not only did they think that was preposterous, but they took it as an attack on the nation. And it was thrown in his face at his trial. But Jesus wasn't speaking literally here. He was speaking figuratively about the temple of his body. And he says, destroy it. And three days later, I will raise it back up again to new life. His disciples remembered later on what he had said, and they connected the dots. Jesus said ahead of time that he would raise himself from the grave, and that is just what he did. And so if we stood in awe of Jesus as he raised someone else like, Raz La like Lazarus from the grave, we should be absolutely floored to realize that he raised himself up. No one saw this coming. It was not just impossible, it was unthinkable, yet that is exactly what he did. 
Jesus raised himself from the dead and it was a greater resurrection by far. And in so doing, he validated his self-sacrifice for your sins. You know, recently I, I watched a part three of a movie trilogy and I really liked the first movie in the trilogy and I think most people did. It was a big hit. I even liked the second edition of the second part of the trilogy that, that came out even though it sort of got mixed reviews. Then the third one came out and the reviews were terrible. The hardcore fans were, were livid. But I remained hopeful. I thought, you know, I'm not a hardcore fan. I'm just going to keep my mind open and see if I can enjoy this movie. So I, I finally just recently sat down and watched part three of this movie trilogy. And let me tell you, it was awful. It was terrible. It was so bad that I think it forever ruined the first two installments of the trilogy that up till now I had enjoyed so much. You know, if Jesus' life would have ended with his grisly death on the cross, who would have returned to relish in the earlier glorious ministry of his life? His horrific demise would have ruined and even invalidated everything he taught or did. His supposed sacrifice on the cross for sins would have been in vain. But the story didn't end like that. Didn't sort of come to a screeching halt and then just pass away into oblivion. Jesus raised himself from the grave at the end as a powerful exclamation point punctuating the truth of all that he was, all that he did. His self-resurrection means that his self-sacrifice for your sins was accepted by God. It means that God really poured out his wrath on his own son, knowing that three days later he could, he could and would rise again. That really happened. That's what Jesus' resurrection tells us. It validates that sacrifice that he made. Reminds me of the, the hymn, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Jesus' self-resurrection validates this precious truth that his self-sacrifice for your sins nails your, your sins to the cross and you can bear it no more by faith in him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, he says, if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. You see how Paul connects there 
the resurrection of Jesus to the validation of his work of redemption on the cross. He says if Christ wasn't raised, then your faith is in vain and you're still in your sins. But praise God, Paul continues here. He says if Christ, if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus raised himself from the dead, and in so doing, he validated his self-sacrifice for your sins. And thirdly, he became the firstborn of a new creation. Jesus knew the depth of our needs So much. He knew that we needed a greater resurrection than the kind of resurrection that he gave to Lazarus. Our true need was a resurrection like the kind of resurrection that Jesus had. You know, as glorious as Lazarus' resurrection from the dead was, as relieved and as grateful as Mary, Mary and Martha must have been to receive their brother back from the grave, Lazarus would go on to die again someday. Poor fellow. In fact, you can read in in John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, that not only did the authorities plan to kill Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead, they planned to kill Lazarus too. They wanted to put him back in that tomb. So as great as Lazarus' resurrection was in the way that it glorified Jesus as the resurrection and the life, I'm not minimizing it in any way, this type of resurrection itself was just a, a shadow of what our true need was. The depth of your need is so much greater than merely extending your life for a few more years living a full life. Your need is is so much greater than that. The real need is not a little bit longer life. The real need in your predicament is a new kind of life. Eternal life is what you need. The real need was for you to be able to rise again like Jesus forevermore. This is why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50, he said, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. See, it was necessary. Paul explains further down in that passage, verses 56 and 57, that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus raised himself from the grave, he did not merely raise the the shell of his broken body from the crucifixion and 
and heal it so that he could live for 30 plus more years before dying again, just like you and I do? Wasn't that kind of resurrection? When Jesus raised himself from the grave, he actually defeated death, removing its sting, and he was raised imperishable to a new and better creation. This is why passages like Colossians 1.18 refer to Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. Even though Lazarus and the widow of Nain's only son and Jairus' daughter were raised up in time before Jesus rose from the grave, but they're not the firstborn from the grave. Jesus is because he's the firstborn of the new creation. And he knew that he needed to die for our sins on the cross. And he knew that he needed to be buried so that what was perishable could perish and that he could rise again imperishable, the firstborn of a new creation. And since he has done so, we have the hope that we shall rise as well like him. Jesus' self-resurrection validated his self-sacrifice for your sins and paved the way for us to become like him, a new creation. So how do you respond to such news? You know, C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would, be, would not be a great moral teacher he would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. How do you respond to this news that Jesus has raised himself from the dead? Well, the only appropriate response is to fall at his feet and worship him as Lord. And that brings me now to one final story in the Lazarus saga from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. It's the only story pertaining to Lazarus that we have yet to talk about in this mini-series. 
What do you do for the man who just raised you up from the dead? Can you imagine being in Lazarus' shoes having been raised from the dead? What do you do for Jesus when he does that for you? How do you thank him? How do you honor him for what he's done? Well, in John chapter 12, verse 2, it says, they gave him a dinner. They gave him a dinner. Apparently, you give the man who raised you from the dead a dinner party in his honor and make him the guest of honor. Oh, how I would have loved to have been at this meal. Wouldn't you? And what did they talk about? Of all the people that could have written a a best-selling book, I think Lazarus could have done it. But we don't get a single word that Lazarus ever spoke. And the text says here that Lazarus was there at the meal, very much alive, reclining at the table with Jesus. We also read that that Martha was there. She makes her appearance where, where we would expect her to be based upon what we know about her personality. She was busily serving the meal. All is humming along nicely at this special occasion honoring their beloved Jesus. But then Mary, Mary, Lazarus' sister, other sister, does something that that makes everyone there feel pretty uncomfortable. Mary brings to Jesus an alabaster jar containing around 11 ounces of expensive ointment made from pure nard. One commentator writes that nard, also known as spike nard, is a fragrant oil derived from the root and spike of the nard plant which grows in the mountains of northern India. Doesn't that description just sound expensive? <laughs> in fact, it was. And, and not only that, but this is described as pure, meaning it was undiluted in any way. Mary comes to Jesus with this treasure, this expensive treasure, and she pours it out, anointing Jesus' feet. This was the work of a servant, not of a hostess. And especially not something that was normally done in the middle of a feast. And then Mary lets her hair down. And she shockingly wipes the feet of the man who raised her brother back from the dead. And the fragrance of this beautiful perfume fills the entire house. And I think this extravagant act of love and devotion was a surprise to everybody who was there. But especially Judas. Judas protests that the perfume could have been sold for a year's wages and given to the poor. But Jesus quiets him and says, receives Mary's simple act of devotion, saying that it was entirely appropriate especially in light of his coming burial. He says, the poor you will always have with you, but 
you do not always have me. As it turns out, Mary is the one who saw, who, who sees the significance of this moment. It seems Mary was ahead of the curve. Her brother was dead and gone, and now he's alive. And how do you say thank you? How do you respond to that kind of glory? Mary recognized that the only appropriate response is to fall at his feet and to worship him as Lord and to pour out on him the best that you have. Knowing that even your most extravagant gift that you can pour out on Jesus is nothing compared to his all-surpassing worth. He's worth so much more. What many people viewed as inappropriate or extravagant was actually the most appropriate and reasonable response in the room that, that day. And if what Mary did was the most appropriate response in the room when Jesus raised her brother from the dead simply so that Lazarus could live for how, who knows how many more years, 10, 20, 30 more years, less if the authorities had their way. How much more should we fall at his feet in awe and love and worship? Because he is risen, raised himself up from the grave. How much more should we, by faith in him, trust in him to bear our sins for us? How much more should we trust in him that one day we shall rise with him alive as new creations to dwell with him forevermore? He is truly the resurrection and the life. And your greatest need this morning is to know him, to repent of your sins, and to believe in him and be saved. took a peek at the headlines as I was writing this sermon the other day. Headlines were, were full of death, body counts, infection rates, even mass graves. What the world needs to know today is Him who overcame the grave by his own power. Ravi Zacharias got it right this week when he said this, our cities smell of death. We need the aroma of life. His name is Jesus Christ. Let's pray.